to the Raptor Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. A reminder, we're streaming live on Sportsnet's YouTube channel and airing live on Sportsnet 360, Monday to Friday from 2 to 3 p.m. Make sure you find the Raptor Show wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe and please rate and review our show. I'm your host, Wim Lou. And for the first segment, I'm joined by Howard Beck of Sports Illustrated. Howard, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. First off, um, you know, uh, the last time you were on, this was, I think, way back in April. Um, that was part of the propaganda campaign, you know, at that time. It was award season. And, um, you know, we, we we had you on in addition to a lot of other major uh, U.S. reporters. And, you know, we sort of spread the gospel of the good word of Scotty Barnes and Pascal Siakam. And then, you know, I, I of course, I, I looked at the, the, the PDF, you know, of the voting. Uh-oh. And uh, I, th- I think I think you did have. Pascal on the third team, and you had uh, Scotty Barnes for Rookie of the Year. So first off, uh, Howard, just want to say thank you on behalf of the Raptor fans. Um, I mean, just just showing how truly wise and informed I am, I guess, right? Because I agreed with your audience, and so that's great. And then if I go on with uh, a Cleveland-based show later today, which I think is actually on my schedule, unfortunately, um, they can just roast me for being an idiot oh, for not voting for Evan Mobley. So that's always fun. I do remember our discussion and I do remember I was still kind of mulling mm. because ballots weren't due yet. Mm. Um, but yeah, um, I guess that's where I came down. You've looked at that PDF more recently than I have. Yeah. I got to say uh, it does put a lot of pressure on the media at that, at that specific point in the year. Um, you know, when sort of, I'm sure I, this program wasn't the only one to sort of do a little bit of campaigning, but you know what? Listen, that's the game, you know, and we, and we get into this for for that reason. Um, you know, I, you know, let's let's start with Patchy Pascal. I was I, I want to talk about the Eastern Conference and sort of just how it's shaping out early on in the season here. And by early on, I mean like after one week. Um, but Pascal, he he finished the season really strong, and he started this season really strong. And I'm curious to to get your thoughts on this, Howard. Like, you know, he's made a very bold proclamation at the start of the season that's probably going to be repeated over and over again. But he said at media day, I want to be top five this season. I mean, we can get to sort of that statement in a second, but just what have you made of Pascal's uh, improvement, both at the end of last season, the way he finished strong to push the Raptors into the playoffs. And then also right now, the way he sort of started the year flirting with triple doubles and just overall looking really great. I mean, obviously really promising. I think what stands out right now are two things. There's, an aggression that I don't think we always have seen from him. And I think that shows up to an extent in just the fact that he's on pace and look, it's very early. So let's put in, you know, caveat and asterisks and and qualifiers on everything uh, because we're talking about a four game sample, but you know, 20.5 field goal attempts per game would be a significant career high. Um, You know, it's been averaging the 17 range the last couple of years. His high before that, of course, was, was 18 and a half shots a game in, in 1920. And, you know, that was just after he had broken out um, and just after Kawhi had left. And so he's been through a lot since then, as you guys know well. And so I think kind of regaining, you know, whether it's physical health, confidence, um, everything, his, you know, his his uh, feelings of security, maybe even with the franchise, given, the, you know, the occasional um, rumors of, of trades and things, he just seems to be very settled into um his kind of his uh his identity and his, his self-confidence um you know there, there's some shooting things that obviously like his, his three-point shooting's off by a little bit right now but i the other thing that stands out aside from just 
obviously on a career high uh, pace for for attempts and scoring um is is the playmaking right like that's you know I, I know you want to talk a little bit about his his you know his uh aspirations of being a top five player i mean i think one of the things you need to do in today's nba to really be an all-around player and to be talked about in those conversations those tiers is to be more than just a scorer and to uh you know to, to be a, a creator for both yourself and your teammates to to kind of lift everybody up around you and you know the high assist numbers as you said flirting with triple doubles kind of speaks to an expanded sense of responsibility and role i think um you know i think all that's encouraging yeah no doubt and you know i, I think especially early in the season you, you do worry a little bit about you know is could there be like a little bit of statistical anomalies you know is it a hot start all this other stuff I mean, I think the, the encouraging thing for Raptor fans to know is that, like, from basically uh, the end of last season, I thought he really took his game up to another level um, from the, from March onward, basically. Um, it, he played 21 games the rest of the season uh, from March. Uh, he averaged 26.5 points per game, 8.7 rebounds, 5.6 assists, shot uh, 52% from the field, got to the free throw line six times a game. And those are basically his averages, exact averages right now. On the season, uh, so it does feel like a bit of a continuation of the way he finished last year. But it's also, you know, he's worked really hard in the offseason. and I think that more than anything else, that that confidence and that um, that self assuredness that uh, you're describing there, I think that's the impression you get from someone who has worked really, really hard in their game. And I think that for himself, he wants to set that goal for himself really high and get into essentially maybe not top five, but essentially like first team All NBA kind of discussions and. Howard, I mean, as someone who has to decide on these things, um, and obviously this is months away, so we'll we'll bug you later down the line as well. But uh, like, can you maybe describe or even carve out a potential road path uh, to to how this would sort of be achieved? Because it is admittedly an extremely loft, uh, lofty uh, aspiration. Yeah, I mean, listen, there's a couple different ways to talk about it. Because if we're talking about literally all NBA, then it's okay. Are you are you going to finish the season as one of the two best forwards in the league? Because the ballot is still structured as you know, uh, two forwards, two guards in the center, and so now you're having to beat out, you know, Giannis and Kevin Durant, and you know, um, I got to think of who else is. I you know, LeBron will be back in the discussion again, of course, if he stays healthy. Um, you know, there's going to be the usual logjam of of players. If we're talking more broadly about like. I want to be a top five player in the NBA. I want to be talked about in MVP discussions, you know, and that's, you know, that's kind of how we really rank top five, right? Like the top five in any given season, not so much all NBA because that's by position. It's, it's really the MVP voting. Well, look at who the MVPs have been and who ends up high on the ballot year in and year out. Those are always going to be players who at almost always, there's some exceptions, almost always going to be one of the top scorers in the league, top five, 10 at, at the least, probably, you know, I haven't run the numbers to know, to know exactly, but you're going to be one of the best scores in the league. Mm -hmm. You're going to be a guy who's viewed as a go-to player in crunch time, mm -hmm. a guy who can, you know, put the team on his back and, you know, carry them at, at, at times of need, a, a quarter, a game, a week, a month, whatever you are, that you are the clear go-to guy on your team. You're the, you're the guy that, 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 uh, team orbits around, um, if we're talking MVP discussion, definitely most, again, most of the time, some mm -hmm. exceptions, you're going to be a 50 plus win team. You're going to be a team that looks like it's got a plausible uh, path to con title contention. 
Um, you're going to be a guy who's viewed as, as somebody who creates a lot of scoring for himself and for his teammates. Defense is a plus, but not always required. Um, you know, yeah. I, you know, uh, Steph Curry comes to mind in his back-to-back years as MVP, Steve Nash, Dirk Nowitzki, um, Jokic. but in general, like the things I just listed, those are the kind of the unspoken, the unspoken prerequisites yeah. to be the MVP discussion. And by, uh, you know, extrapolation, the top five, top 10 type player discussion. So the question becomes, can Pascal Siakam at age 28 make the kind of leap to be in that kind of conversation to be that kind of player? And I was thinking about this before we came on and like, it's pretty rare for a player to, to make a leap from star, which Pascal Siakam has been mm-hmm. to superstar, which is what we're talking about when we talk about MVPs and top five players. Um, it's rare to make that leap at this age. Although uh, I mentioned Steve Nash a minute ago, Steve Nash did. Right. Nash was a That's guy who made like two, two all-star teams in Dallas was looked, viewed as a really good player, but not a superstar, not a future hall of famer necessarily, not a, you know, a go-to guy, not a guy who you build your entire universe around. And he also is the exception to the rule in the scoring part of it, of course. But then Nash goes to Phoenix and we know everything else that happened there and he wins, you know, a couple of MVPs. So it's rare to make the leap at 28, I think. Um, I haven't, no no other examples came to mind immediately, but that's the leap that Siakam would be trying to make to get to that goal. Yeah, and, and, you know, in in Nash's case too, it was was also like a stylistic revolution and him at sort of the head of that uh, as well. And, you know, I think even w- when you look back at it, those are two of the MVPs that I think players at that time really contend um, should have been theirs. I'm thinking about Shaq. I'm thinking about Kobe, obviously, before he's passed. You know, like, there's there's other guys who sort of, like, like claim to a lot of those. But, look, regardless, I, I think those are really great points. And I think the one thing that really stood out to me is just, like, that crunch time scoring. I think that, more than anything else, like, you know, you know how this game works. It's like people can't watch every single game. It's just not possible, right? No. Um, but if you come up with big moments... Big moments that I if, I, if I just say it, you just envision those in your mind immediately. Like DeMar DeRozan hits a game winner on New Year's Eve. And then the next, the very next day on New Year's Day, DeMar DeRozan hits a game winner. You know, like those kind of plays, when they stick out in your mind so, you know, obviously when, when you come time to think about these things for voting, like, of course, those crunch time moments are going to matter the most. And I think, look, Pascal had a really nice baseline fadeaway against Miami, which, you know, to, to, to kind of seal that game in the last minute, very impressive shot. Those are the kind of shots that he makes more often. They make the rounds more often, and it puts people more in, in awareness of what he's doing because I think that, you know, that is also the other part too. It's just, you're going to need some campaigning. But listen, this is the show for campaigning, and uh, <laughs> I just wanted to know, you know, essentially what, what, what it might look like down the line. We can come back to this conversation. Look, I, I think the rest of the East, right? So, um, Howard, I, I don't know how you had it tiered coming into the season, and I, and I doubt that it has changed too much. But in terms of Eastern Conference tiers, I think the consensus was that uh, Philly, Boston, and Milwaukee were sort of above the rest. First off, is that sort of how you had it? And and I just wanted to get your thoughts on uh, those three teams uh, at the start of the season. Yeah, I mean, I think I was in the camp of like Milwaukee, Boston are in their own tier at the top. Okay. And then Philly is maybe the next tier by themselves. And then like, they're like the nets are floating somewhere in the top two to three tiers. Cause who the heck knows what the heck is going on with the nets or what will go on or yeah, can Ben Simmons I, stop fouling out all the time. Like, Holy moly. <laughs> yeah. Um, among other alarming aspects of his game so far. Right, yeah. Um, so, and then, you know, I, 
I had kind of downgraded Miami a little bit. Um, like I, I, if we're talking to the teams that I expected to be, you know, top four, Milwaukee, Boston, um, Philly and kind of Brooklyn with a fat asterisk. Mm. Um, and then Miami fifth with the potential to break back in. Cause Miami constantly surprises us. Right. Um, yeah. Looking a little shaky early, early now, but. Uh, they didn't um, look that great against the Raptors two games. I mean, they, they, they split yeah. the series, but it wasn't like, holy, we can't find a way to beat this team. It was like, ah, yeah, you're executing. You're okay. Yeah. They've been, they've been, you know, you know, uh, trying to, to squeeze, you know, uh, an elite, you know, they've been trying to, to squeeze, uh, what, what is it? Uh, blood from a stone is I think the phrase yeah. I'm looking for. Um, they just don't have that kind of elite offensive talent that most of the top teams do, right? They don't have a Giannis and they don't have a, a, a Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown combo. They just don't have a lot of offensive generators. And so uh, they have to get by on just, you know, great defense, um, timely scoring, mm -hmm. efficient scoring, ball movement, beating the heck out of you sometimes, whatever. But I just yep. don't feel like the, the, the Heat have the kind of offensive pop. And yet, that's been the, their profile for the last couple of years, and they keep defying that and being a, a contender of some sort. Uh, but I just I, I feel like they're like that 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 formula has some limits to it. And then they lost PJ Tucker, who, you know, not a big offensive player for them, but clearly a floor spacer and a, a you know great defender and, and a key piece for them. They, so they look very that's small kind of the without way PJ too. What's that? They look really small without PJ. Yeah. And it's not like yeah, PJ is some sort of, of like seven footer who's like, you know, controlling the pain or whatever, but there's just a level of physicality that really drops. Cause you, you know, you, I mean, I, again, I've seen them very closely the last two games. It's just, uh, you know, like they really miss Caleb Martin, for example. And it's like, you shouldn't miss him that much because he got into a random scrap with a rookie. Anyway, we're not here to talk about that. The, the, uh, <laughs> but, but the Celtics though, the Celtics look completely unfazed. Yeah. I mean, I, I understand yes. that like they got, they got dropped by, uh, I think Chicago, but to me, when I'm watching them, they, they just look exactly like they were last year, the way they finished the year. They're, you know, they had some injuries. Obviously, Robert Williams is a big uh, miss for them. Obviously, the email situation is still very confusing. And, you know, um, obviously, the coaching staff is very up in the air at the moment. But, I mean, to me, it, the Celtics clearly look really, really good, just like they did last year. And, you know, you're going to have to go through Boston if you're going to try to come out the East eventually. Yes. Um the Celtics, it's interesting, right? So Ime Udoka gets suspended for the season. They install uh Joe um God, uh Missoula, excuse mm -hmm. me. Yep. It's it's gonna it's gonna take weeks before that comes to without having to think to uh, for for a minute. Um they yeah. install Joe Missoula, who has no head coaching experience aside from a stint in division two, um, who's thirty-four years old, who most people hadn't heard of, uh, you know, fans hadn't heard of. And you know, it's the, the natural thing is to, is to think, well, some combination of having your third head coach in three years, the lack of experience by uh, Missoula as he's installed, and just the cloud of having this 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 strange, controversial, kind of troubling situation hanging over them, this all has to coalesce into becoming some sort of of uh, ballast on 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 the Celtics to start the season, and yet it hasn't at all. They've picked up exactly where they left off or even better than where they left off because where they left off was kind of misfiring in the, in the finals, but against a great team. Um, and it kind of makes the case in some weird way that like, you know, maybe the head coach isn't that important once you've established your chemistry, uh, this coming a season after 
they made the case for why head coaches are really important because Ime Udoka, I think, created a different set of expectations and accountability that they just couldn't get under Brad Stevens as great as Brad Stevens was as a coach. They just needed a different voice and a and maybe that old school approach that that Ime brought. Um, so it's just interesting from that standpoint, right? Like I, 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 I debate this in just with myself all the time, year after year, like how much does coaching really matter? How many wins can a coach add or subtract based on how good they are with a team? Um, and so that's, I don't know, I've just been playing with that thought for, for this early part of the season as well, but no, they look great. Um, you know, Tatum and Brown both look, uh, absolutely primed to, to do some damage. My colleague, Chris Mannix wrote a story for our preview issue, just about the idea that the Celtics really came out of the finals with this massive, you know, chip on their shoulder and, and, a, and a need to prove an urge to prove that, that the finals wasn't a fluke and that, you know, that they are capable of winning championships. Yeah. I mean, I, I think they're, they're right on pace. They just got to get a little healthier. Um, obviously got to wait for Al Horford and, see if he he can hold up for an entire playoff run again, but I really don't see any doubts about that. And they've added some depth. Uh, as, as someone, you know, in, in Toronto, who generally Toronto does not like Boston sports teams. I don't know if the 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 annoyance is sort of like two-way, but um, yeah, it's it's sad to see, unfortunately, from this perspective. But it's good for them, at least. Um, Philly, though. Philly is interesting to me. Philly is... Um, so they didn't start the season too well. They, they lost the first three games, including one against the Spurs, which... Uh, I mean, you know, you shouldn't really be losing to the Spurs at home. Um, but, you know, I, I think the, the the bigger subplot is sort of can James Harden and Joel Embiid coexist to the point where they feel like more than the sum of their parts or even just like equal to the sum of their parts. Sometimes when you watch the two of them together, you feel like they're less than the sum of their parts. Is that is that the impression you get from them as well, Howard? <laughs> yeah, I mean that that is the story of the Sixers right now. They are less than the sum of their parts. Um uh, you know, this is one of those classic cases of, you know, especially for Sixer fans, and I think for plenty of us in the media who expect more of the Sixers, where you 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 try to pump the brakes and say, Well, it's early yet. Um it, you know, I'm not sure what's more troubling for them. You're losing to two teams that they're that they are supposed to be in the same echelon as to start the season in, in Boston and Milwaukee, right? Or then following it up with a loss to a team that's supposedly tanking, tanking this year in the Spurs. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I, the generous view would be, you know, that this is still kind of a new group. That Harden got there middle of last season, had a couple months to try to to get a, a sense of his his role there, playing off of Embiid. He's never played out, you know, with a, with a teammate like Joel Embiid before. Um, their need to make sure that Tyrese Maxey, you know, a, a burgeoning star doesn't get lost in the shuffle between Harden and Embiid dominating the offense. They add PJ Tucker, they add Daniel house, they add Anthony Melton, you know, overhauled the bench a little bit, trying to figure out roles all over again. That, that would be the generous view, right? They're mm. early in a season where they've kind of reconstituted, um, but, you know, Harden came in, it's presumably or seemingly in great shape. Embiid came in apparently in not as great a shape because he had some plantar fasciitis issues in the offseason and it, it messed up his his uh, offseason training. So maybe that's a little bit of an issue. Um, but it just doesn't really seem like the Embiid-Harden combination is producing the kind of, you know, better than some of their parts results that you would expect, right? Mm -hmm. Like they should be a devastating pick and roll combo. They should be a devastating combo period. 
And then you throw in Maxi and all of his offensive abilities and they've got shooting, they've got defense, like all the ingredients are there. You would check almost every box. Uh, so at the moment, I'm just going to chalk it up to, to early season doldrums or, or just feeling out period. But, you know, we'll check back in a couple of weeks. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, look, this, this team is very, very talented. And, and you know what? The Raptors are going to see them up close. We're going to see them twice in a row here. Uh, and we can sort of make further assessments uh, whether they're going to be, you know, three and three after this or if they're going to be one and five. One and five will be very interesting to see. I think, uh, I think Philadelphia's fan base will, will take that well. Um, I mean, I think that there's a bit of a question to me in terms of just like what kind of player thrives beside James Harden and specifically what types of star players thrive behind James, uh, beside James Harden, right? Because, look, you can throw out the OKC th thing because obviously he was coming off the bench, six-man kind of thing. Um, but in Houston, there wasn't ever a, a co-star that really like worked great with him except for Chris Paul. And then, of course, that ended very poorly with him. Um and then I think last year when Harden first got here, it was like, yeah, it was like, uh, let's l have him play point guard. And he wasn't scoring as much. And there's so much discussion of, does he have the burst to score one-on-one -on -one anymore? And people were calling him washed. And I don't think he was washed. He had good moments in the playoffs, especially against the Raptors. But, you know, there were times where he really didn't perform. And then now you start to see the season and he's really rolling, but it feels like Embiid really isn't. So I don't know. I, I guess there is a bit of a question in terms of just like what type of player star player thrives around James Harden or if, or if that's even possible based on the way he plays, you know? Yeah, right. Like he, he went through a lot of co-stars in Houston uh, from Dwight Howard to Chris Paul to Russell Westbrook and they, and, and all of them ended badly. It always ended yeah. with, with, with bad feelings and, you know, you know, some desperate trades and some, some ill-fated trades and, and um, you know, guys who, you know, Oh, we're friends. We, you know, this will be our work great. Cause we're, we're, we're friends off the court. I don't know why you guys think that we can't share the ball. Well, <laughs> yeah, you know, well. <laughs> didn't, didn't work so well. And friendships yeah. are kind of fungible in the NBA. Um, so I, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's legitimate, um, skepticism baked into that. And, you know, I, I thought there was something interesting that, that Harden said, we didn't hear him say it directly, but in the, uh, TNT broadcast last week, Chris Haynes, during one of the, you know, segments where he came on to talk about, you know, what his reporting of the day was around the team. And he said, I talked to James Harden this morning and I'm going to paraphrase this because I don't have it in front of me, but Harden, Chris Haynes uh, said that Harden said something to the effect of, you know, I know these people are writing me off and that I'm not still the same player that I was. And, you know, kind of like this idea of I'm, I'm going to show them I'm still that guy. And that actually caught my attention because I, I found it almost a little alarming hmm. in that, you know, if, if Harden's out to prove I'm still that guy, forget what you saw in, in Brooklyn before I, before the trade or forget what you saw last year in Philly, whatever. Well, then he looked that, that, that tells me that he might want to be the guy who's dominating the ball a lot and dominating the offense and maybe to the detriment of, of Embiid or the rest of the team. Like, I, I'm not sure that's the best thing. Like the best thing, if Harden can still play at that level in terms of just his, abilities his shot making his acceleration and deceleration and mm -hmm. keeping guys off balance um to 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 create room for himself to shoot his playmaking all that if that's what he's talking about fine but if it's more about like i'm going to put up numbers and show you all i can still be this triple double machine that that harden often was or just you know obviously a, a ton of points a lot of assists then then i wonder if that's too much of him thinking about how to prove I'm still this guy as opposed to I prove I can win yeah. at a high level. Yeah. Um, so that, that struck me as per potentially concerning. Yeah, no doubt. I think especially at this point, what you want to hear is I'm here to win a championship. I want to do everything that the team wants me to do to, to contribute towards winning. 
I want to step up as a playmaker. I want to play defense or at least be very committed to defense on that front to whatever degree that looks like. And of course, you know, whatever the team needs of me in terms of the scoring and crunch time offense, you know, I, I will be there to step up and take big shots. But, you know, I, I think, look, uh, these are these are sort of storylines that we'll track sort of throughout the year. Um, real quickly with the Lakers, um, man, Howard, this is... This is, I mean, look, the Lakers are, are are great because they're on national TV every single day, so everyone can look very, very clearly at how bad they are all the time. Even, even all their their shoot-arounds are on national TV, their yeah. practices are on national TV. When they go to lunch, that's on national TV. It's amazing. Yeah, it's like, oh, they're in summer league, and 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 Westbrook didn't sit courtside with LeBron or didn't didn't uh, acknowledge them. And I'm like, I have never cared even once in my life about who sits beside who in summer league. This is stuff that you should be doing in middle school, not uh, not professional <laughs> NBA after 10 years with two MEPs. But, um, yeah, I mean, look, this is I, – I think, I think look, Westbrook's going to get a lot of the blame. To be honest, Westbrook kind of deserves a lot of the blame. He does play poorly. There was that game against Portland where he just – decided instead of eating up some clock, I'm just going to shoot a long two here and miss it. And it's like, man, you're really opening the door for Portland to come back and win, which is exactly what happened there. And yeah, I mean, I, this is just, this is so bad. And I feel for Westbrook in particular, it's just like, this can't, this, this is like the worst drop off I've seen from an MVP level, like the, the fall from grace and just sort of how disgraceful it's been at certain times. Like that has to be the worst that I can remember as, in my time following the NBA, which is about like, 20 years or so Howard I'm gonna lean on your experience have you seen another player who was as great as Westbrook fall to the dramatic degree that he has you know as of right now uh, several come to mind and they're all of a similar um, um profile as a player but not necessarily with his resume um okay although some Iverson is the first one yes yeah uh, Iverson he wrote it very quickly and could not accept a, a a lesser role, a complimentary role. And because of that, his career ended much sooner than it needed to. And Westbrook seems to be very much on that track. Carmelo Anthony is a version of that. Um, Steve Francis and Stephon Marbury, both different circumstances, and yeah, they were never, never at good. Westbrook's yeah, never at Westbrook's heights. Yeah. But ball dominant, um, basically scorers who played point guard. Mm -hmm. And um and they both eroded quickly. For, you know, Marbury had all kinds of stuff. He was out of the league and yeah. went off to China because nobody in the NBA wanted to sign him anymore when he still had plenty of good years left. Francis just kind of eroded physically. Right. Um, but yeah, Westbrook, I mean, it's pretty dramatic. It's pretty dramatic, and part of it is fit, and it, it's the wrong team at the wrong time. I'm not sure he's going to be a, a, a real great player anywhere anymore, but certainly a team that's built around him he'd have a better shot than a team built around LeBron Fair. James and Anthony Davis. It was yeah. always an ill-fated, you know, bad idea. Yeah, so it's a horrible fit. And um, it's 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 looking really sad for even just LeBron. I mean, like, I, I think for any great player, like, you just want to see them maximize, especially at the end of their careers, because obviously not everything's going to last forever. And if this is the way his career ends in this sort of Lakers situation, which has very little upside, it's uh, it's really tough. But it's, it's a big contrast to uh, a book that you wrote. Um, a Sports Illustrated commemorative book about the Lakers called The Greatest Show on Earth, A History of the Los Angeles Lakers Winning Tradition. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I think the, the the bubble period definitely fits into there. But outside of that, obviously, the, the recent Lakers are sort of stand in stark contrast to that. So, yeah, just Howard, just tell us about the book and sort of like, I don't know, when the Lakers are good. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, so the book is the greatest show on earth. Um, I did not write it, but I did write the forward for it. It oh, is, okay. it's, it's, uh, it is a compilation of 
15 pieces from the pages of Sports Illustrated uh, from over the last 60 years or so, going back to the 60s. So these are stories about all the Laker icons, right? Elgin Baylor, Wilt Chamberlain, mm -hmm. Jerry West, Magic, Kareem, Kobe, Shaq, LeBron, of course. Um, and they're from the pages of SI, so it's by some of the greatest sports writers of all time, Frank right. DeFord and Chris Ballard, Lee Jenkins, Jack McCallum, Phil Taylor. Um, yeah, so it's it's, it's a phenomenal book. Yeah, yeah, it is. That's the thing. Like the the what I love about this book, and I was honored to, to be you know asked to write the forward for it. But it's it's some of the best sports writing you can find because SI has traditionally had some of the greatest sports writers over the years. Uh, but it, so it's I think it's great for NBA fans and you don't have to be a laker fan you could just be a fan of great sports writing but also yeah look the lakers are you know one of the the uh iconic franchises in all of professional sports of course and uh they've got such a rich history and there's such richly written profiles of their major figures in this book plus obviously si known for great photography so there's a mm. bunch of incredible photos uh in there as well um i think the funny thing about it just as a quick contrast to where they are right now or or also just germane to where they are the lakers have always been about stars about superstars and they'll get them one way or the other and lebron kind of restored that after they went through this fallow period after kobe uh had retired and then anthony davis comes along to, to join lebron and then, of course, you know, they they just kind of like overindulged, which is, is also a habit of the Lakers <laughs> by going out yeah. and getting Westbrook. Um, and so they're, they've always just been defined by superstars, by some of the biggest names in the game. And that's that's even the case right now while they're going through what looks like potentially a disastrous season. But it's still about the stars. And it's also about drama because that's the other thing that the Lakers do bigger than anybody. Yeah, no doubt. All right. Well, Howard, thank you so much for taking time. Appreciate it. Uh, uh, go Always pick up the book. And uh, yeah. All right. We're going to take a break right here. I'm your host, Will Lou. You've been listening to The Raptors Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Smart takes on the biggest stories in sports. The Fan Drive Time with Ben Ennis. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. To the Raptors show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. I'm your host, Wim Lou. For the second segment here, we'll be joined by Sportsnet's Michael Grange. Uh, wrote an incredible feature on Scotty Barnes. Um, Grange, are you on the line? I am. Grange, how you doing, man? I'm good, Well, I'm good. Good to speak with you. Yeah, likewise. Well, listen, um, this story up on Sportsnet.ca, uh, it's called Faster, Higher, Stronger, Happier. Uh, it's about Scotty Barnes. The uh, website immediately told me it was going to be a 22-minute read. That's when I knew it was going to be a banger. Uh, and then I saw the lead, and, man, this is this is a great lead. All right, This is the first sentence of the piece. The Toronto Raptors dressing room at Scotiabank Arena is a circle, though not exactly symmetrical. It bends towards the gravity of stars. So, Grange, let's start there. What, what do you mean by that? That's, that's a hell of an intro, man. Thank you. Well, the... Um... It's kind of funny. I've been uh, around this team for a long time, long enough to know the background of the Raptors uh, dressing room story. And it goes way back to when Isaiah Thomas was running the team. And he kind of, they were in the midst of designing uh, Scotiabank Arena. And, and um, you know, his big innovation was a circular dressing room. And it was, you know, the idea it was a good one. It was, you know, everyone could see, everyone was equidistant in the middle. There was no room to kind of hide. Everyone could kind of look each other in the eye. 
<clears throat> and just sort of as time, and of course, Isaiah Thomas never got to see it in fruition. He, he took off when uh, going got tough, as we all know. But, um, but what was left behind was this, this circle. And just kind of by luck, really, it wasn't by any particular design, um, that's the right, if you go in the room on the right-hand side, it's at the north end of the building. Um, that's traditionally where the team's biggest stars have been. And that's where, uh, Vince Carter was, that's where Chris Boss was. That's where, you know, people remember when Kyle and DeMar were doing their stand-up back, that was, that's kind of where they were. Yeah. And of course I hadn't been in that room for, it felt like nearly two years. Right. And uh, we're allowed back in as media and went in. And the first thing I noticed is, hey, <laughs> Scotty Barnes is over on the uh, where Vince used to be and Kyle used to be and Pascal Siakam is now. And, and I just thought it was kind of an interesting little, a very fitting little, uh, not a very complicated symbol to figure out, but I thought it made sense for the piece. Yeah, no, I think it makes sense. And I think it kind of sets like uh, the expectation, right, for where this could go with Scotty this season you know, in future seasons, but the idea is that, you know, he is going to eventually join uh, those type of players. Now, of course, like, there's a long way to go. Like, I, I even remember, like, in the offseason, you know, people kind of talk to themselves about anything because there's just no basketball going on. And the discussions are like, how quickly can Scotty Barnes get as good as Pascal Siakam? And a lot of people were like, he can, get, he, he can beat that level next year. And I'm like, can we just slow down just a little <laughs> bit? Like, Pascal's really good. Like, we're seeing it right now, but he, you should also see it because he's, like, on the All-NBA team and stuff. It's like, you're not expecting Scotty to be there next season. I think that that's too quick. And I think that the, the important part there is that a lot of work goes into sort of making these players get to that level. I think that's, a, that's something your piece did really well here is just, like, you talk to his trainer, and you talk to his trainer specifically about the ways in which you build up Scotty's skill set. So I'd love to sort of have you share some of the stories that uh, Scotty's personal trainer uh, share to you in terms of how they're sort of going about making his game go to the next level. Yeah, it, it was really interesting. And the fellow's name is Brian, uh, Brian Macon. And he's, he's a big figure in Scotty's life. So he's not just a guy he hires to put him through drills. This is um, someone who, you know, when Scotty was just a young kid and kind of getting into the game and he was uh, living with uh, another family for a little while, um, he would start to go to these basketball camps in the Boca Raton area. And um, with his older brother and Brian had played a couple of years at Boston University, so a good you know a good D one player. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says, "Look, this guy is my mentor. He's like well, like a father figure on the court, off the court. He's really someone who is uh, essential in Scotty's story." And interestingly, and I think tellingly, um, you know, as Scotty started blowing up, like he was on you know Team USA teams at that age. 15, 16 years old, like he was, he wasn't like, you know, he was a known thing. Uh, Scotty never wavered, wavered. And so um, I think that says a lot about Scotty Barnes. Cause I mean, once a guy's profile gets up there, you know, they can work out with anybody, right? right. People are, people want that guy on their Instagram page. <laughs> and um, anyway, so, so, and what was interesting talking to Brian uh, was it was his phone that lit up. So after the, you know, they get eliminated by the Sixers and, you all know, Scotty had that ankle injury. He takes about, you know, just a few days off after that and, and hits up Brian and says, look, let's get to work. And um, they put in, they basically, they decided that we're going to work right through to the NBA finals. So we're going to train full time mm. as if, 
you know, we were going to go to game seven of the finals. And uh, in that period, they were doing two days. And, you know, and, and what was interesting talking to Ryan was like how challenging, but also really fun it is to train a guy like Scotty because you're really, it's like training a point guard, a power forward and a center all mm. at the same time. And, right. and so they would kind of break their workouts down and, He'd come in the morning with usually with a couple of guys from the area that he, he knew from high school that were playing college, and they would just do mostly guard type workouts, a lot of ball handling, you know, all the kind of stuff you might expect. And then after that workout, you know, that's when Scotty would go and get his post touches, and you know, the other guys they weren't that wasn't a big part of their program. So so Scotty would go and you know and, he, and you know and that's what we really see. And it was interesting actually. I talked to Kelly Olenek for the piece too. He scrimmaged with Scotty in the summer. I couldn't believe how ambidextrous he was and so it was just a lot of time making sure he's getting left-handed touches getting right-handed touches and all the footwork goes into that that work we've seen him as a pretty good point post player i would say and then you know takes a break goes back relaxes does whatever and then comes back in the evening and then they would take one kind of move or one sequence um could be a mid-range thing could be you know working out of a pick and roll could be whatever it might be and and just drill that and and really kind of drill drill down on one or two uh, kind of fundamental things and then after that they would you know get into your shooting and and catch and catch and shoot threes and all that and so they would just do that over and over again just trying to check off a lot of boxes because like you said it's a tough thing to do is is it's not like you know, like Jalen Green, for example, in, in Houston, like that guy's played one brand of basketball his entire career, yeah. right? And he's so and, good at uh, watching the NBA. Yeah, and, and uh, whereas Scotty's really trying to kind of become like four different players. So, right. so I thought that was really interesting. And then he said, like, at the end of that, he felt like Scotty had made a huge leap. And that's when, you know, he goes to Vegas and we see those scrimmages from Scotty's, uh, from Scotty's uh, YouTube channel, mm-hmm. um, you know, against Raptors first, and then they go to, to LA in August and, and you see him doing it against the top NBA guys. And, and uh, you know, that's where there was so much optimism, I think from Scotty and from the Raptors about the summer he had, I guess, uh, prior to that little ankle injury he had. Yeah, no, you, first of all, you got to hand it to Scotty um, already a burgeoning career in, in media, um, just based on the content he's putting <laughs> out there. I mean, you know, a salute to the guys in the open gym, everything like that. Um, but you know, even, even some of the own vlogs were, were really, really high quality. Yeah, and, yeah, and I talked I talk to a kid named Max Gilberg, who uh, who was the producer of those. And if you haven't seen them, I'm, I can't imagine there's many people on your show or listening to your show routinely haven't gone and seen Scotty's Summer Diaries. But I really encourage <laughs> I'm you. sure everyone has seen it. Yeah, like, like I was probably yeah. the last guy to watch yeah. it. But, um, but I mean, they're great, right? And yeah, I think yeah. you get a good feel for what Scott, why Scotty's such a fun guy and a good guy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and I, I said it to piece, I mean, it, it takes a certain personality to do play-by-play of their own highlights, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and not come he's off coming with for that. every media job, right? man. My job, your job, you know what I mean? Like like Devil's like job. <laughs> like he's doing it, but there's something about, and this is we can probably talk about this too. But the um, he's doing it in a way that everyone likes it. It's just mm-hmm. funny yeah. because somehow he can be so good and be like putting guys on skates and. You know, chirp, basically chirping about it. His own teammates, Great. his own teammates, but yeah. it's not obnoxious. Like it's just a really weird balance he's yeah. able to strike, and I think it really speaks to why he's such a unique 
uh, figure for this team is, uh, you know, I talked to Gary Trent about just that kind of stuff. And, and he just, they, like this, the, you say the name and the, the eyes light up, the smile lights up. They start saying goofy things about him, right. you know, and, uh, and it's just, you know, Fred put it really well. He just says, look, you know, these seasons are long and we're all kind of like, have to kind of look like we're depressed half the time. You see, you know, Fred being Fred says, you know, I don't know what kind of act that is, but, mm-hmm. but, you know, Fred just gives everybody, Johnny just gives everyone a kind of a permission to be fun, to, mm-hmm. to make it, you know, to make it what it should be is like the best job in the world. Right. And, and I think that's another big aspect that comes through in the piece and talking to people around him too. Yeah. And definitely you paint a good picture of like, especially cause he obviously he's so young right now. Right. And do you have a lot of people sort of involved in the making of Scotty Barnes? Right. You talk to his trainer, Brian, you talk to, um, you know, his former coach, uh, Leonard Hamilton at FSU. And at, at that part, I did not know this, but this is such an interesting approach. Um, so you describe here that essentially FSU gathers for these team talks, almost like a, th- a therapeutic session where it, it is it is legitimately group therapy. Like it yeah. is run by okay. a professional. Yeah. Yeah. And, and th- for the players on the team and they sort of get together and they talk about everything and. And I thought, first off, that's a very innovative approach, very, uh, you know, just a very forward approach, quite honestly, especially today when you're dealing with um, this current generation. But how has that sort of approach helped Scotty in sort of his maturation as a player, both uh, in terms of what he can do on the court, but also as a teammate and sort of the emotional maturation that you need to sort of be successful? Yeah, I thought that was in- that was really interesting. And, and- there's a couple of things there, and I, I was talking to Pat Williams for the Bill, the Bulls about this. And, and first of all, like only certain people kind of go to Florida State, right? Because that's sort of what they're selling you on is like no one is bigger than the team. You're here to grow as a person. Yeah. Um, you know, they've had like Scotty, Pat Williams, and before that, uh, Mifundu Kamigali. I uh, was with Boston now, the kid from Burlington. That's three first-round picks, two high lottery picks who never started a game or barely, or basically came off the bench yeah. for Florida State, yeah. right? And and that is, think about that. Like, what other program is convincing guys who are at that quality to to take on that role? And and so you know, you know that going in. So Scotty's a certain mindset. He's willing to, you know, he's he's willing to kind of buy into that a little bit. Um, but once there. There's a real investment in trying to get people to be a little vulnerable with each other, um, honest with each other, um, happy for each other. Mm-hmm. And it's a real tough balance in an environment where, you know, guys, you know, it's not all that different from the NBA. Maybe it's even a little more desperate because guys are really trying. Yeah, and yeah. you're really trying to show out. And, um, and so those therapy sessions, I mean, I, you know, they, they're no, it's not like people are telling you everything is going on in them, like, but they do sound pretty intense. Like at times they've been like, I went to one point they were like, he went to one of those like six hours. Wow. And, um, you know, so there's a lot of like really getting to know the person, but also in terms of skills, it, it's, they call them hot call outs. And it's, you know, just getting to a point where uh, you're comfortable calling out a teammate for something that's, you know, needs to be better. And perhaps more importantly, but, but, but there's a way to do it, right? It, it's yeah. And, you know, 20-year-old, you know, alpha males, maybe they don't always know how to do it the right way, but there is a way to do it. You do it, first of all, from a place of love and respect. And with, uh, you know, you give a little, Scotty told me, you give a little sugar and then you give them a little, 
you know, a little bit of vitamins and they give them a little more, you know, sugar at the end. Right. And, yeah. and um, so that's one thing. But then the other is being able to receive that and have someone call you out mm-hmm. and understand that it's not uh, to be taken personally. It's because they have their best interest and the team's best interest. And so you take those kind of life skills you've maybe gained and, you know, you fast forward into an NBA environment and, you know, it's, it stands out. And, you know, Freddie was telling me about just seeing how he, you know, they, he had to call out for Scotty more than once. And we saw Scotty, you know, get pulled early in a few games. And, you know, as great as that season was, or, you know, it wasn't always perfect. Yeah. And, you know, and, and that really facilitated growth. And, and um, you know, I think that's why, you know, that's a, a big reason why the Raptors drafted him. And I think it's a big reason why they're very optimistic about what his uh, ceiling can be. Yeah, no, it was, it was great that you juxtaposed uh, the experiences at FSU with sort of that, you know, real life NBA experience that he had with Fred. And, you know, that's, that's Fred's role on the team, right? You, you, he's, he's like the old head, even though he's like 27 or 28. It's, it's very distressing how he's able to do that. But <laughs> no, it sounds like honestly, Leonard Hamilton's got to be the head coach of the Brooklyn Nets. I feel like, I feel like Leonard could do a great job with, with Brooklyn. But seriously, Grange, you, you did such a great job with this piece. Everyone should go read it. It's up on sportsnet.ca. Um, yeah, faster, higher, stronger, happier. Grange, appreciate you, and congrats on the piece, man. It was just really well done. Awesome. Thanks for uh, – I love doing it, and thanks for uh, giving me the opportunity to chat about it. It was fun. Anytime, Grange, anytime. All right. All right, that was Michael Grange, sportsnet.ca. Everyone knows Michael Grange. Come on. Um, yeah, and, and just honestly, like, I, I don't get tired of reading these pieces about Scotty Barnes because, you know, you get, obviously, uh, the behind-the-scenes, the basketball portions – the way you're training a player who obviously is multi-positional, as we discussed, but you also just get so many great quotes. And look, I understand that like these aren't people on the record aren't necessarily going to be like slamming a guy, but I think it's very clear that universally Scotty just gets great personal reviews. Like you have quotes here that that Granger's able to collect, you know, from the guy Max who's been working with him on the YouTube series, who sees him obviously behind the scenes because you're literally like you know behind the scenes with the camera. He said, quote, he doesn't have this big ego. He doesn't treat people like they're below him or anything. People get nervous, and then they come up to him, but he just treats them like a good human being. He's just this normal kid who's really good at basketball, you know? And, you know, you got Fred saying, quote, I told his mom she did a great job. He's a great kid. Like, that's, you know, these, these, those are exactly the type of uh, quotes that you hear about Scotty all the time. So, once again, go read that piece. Um, lastly, before we go here, uh, we're going to do Between the Lines, brought to you by Bet Rivers. It's a whole new game. Fortunately, Alex is not here, but he has already texted me about uh, advice on how to bet Liverpool's match against uh, uh, Ajax coming up shortly here. I told him, don't bet Liverpool this year. That's actually a, a really not a good idea this year. But anyway, um, about basketball. So the, the, the Raptors are, uh, you know, underdogs, plus one and a half tonight at home um, against Philly. This is going to be a little bit tricky because obviously, so obviously these two teams know each other really well. They just played each other in the playoffs. Um, I think to me, the biggest thing is, okay, so Philly is not necessarily off to a great start. I know they got the win against, I think, Indiana. To be honest, if you're not beating Indiana, you're not a serious team. Um, So they at least got that portion done. But I think, you know, in these series against Philly, like it depends really how the Raptors want to guard them, right? If they swarm Joel Embiid, which they're almost guaranteed to swarm Joel Embiid, and they double James Harden, then what you're probably going to see is a lot of three-point shooters go off. So you're probably going to see Tobias Harris score higher than a season average. You're going to see Tyrese Maxey. I mean, we saw what Tyrese Maxey did to the Raptors last year. I don't think the other additions in terms of Philly, like we'll see if they impact the series all that much, whether you're looking at P.J. Tucker or 
you know, Melton or some of these other guys. But, I mean, for the most part, I think the way the Raptors like to play is they try to force Philly's main guys to pass. And I think that that can be really good when they really resist the pass. But I also think that they know how to play against this sort of style of defense. So ultimately, they were able to break down the Raptors' defense quite thoroughly in quite a few games, uh, you know, in the playoffs. So, um, you know, I, I think, I, I, I don't know if I, I, weirdly I'm leading Philly on this one. Um, and I'm probably leading the over on, on, on two eleven and a half for the total for the game. But, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a novice better. And, uh, you know, if you take this advice and it goes well, just thank me. And if it doesn't, you know, let me know um, so I can improve. So that was Between the Lines brought to you by Bet Rivers. It's a whole new game. Um, Alex, I know you're tuning in so make sure uh, you get all that down. And, uh, <laughs> Alex has been doing these like three or four way parlays. And uh, he's actually doing pretty well. So I think in, in the future segments, we should get Alex on more often just to sort of share what he's been doing, his advice of, uh, you know, how to bet. But uh, for now, that does it for us today. Uh, I've been your host, Walu, and you've been listening to The Raptor Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Make sure you find The Raptor Show wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe and please rate and review our show. A reminder, we're streaming live on Sportsnet's YouTube channel and airing live on Sportsnet 360, Monday to Friday from 2 to 3 p.m. Thanks once again to Howard Beck, of Sports Illustrated, go get his uh, the book that he wrote the forward on. Not 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 the whole book that he wrote, by the way. It's, I did misattribute that. My bad. Alex put it very clearly in the chart that he's running the forward. And uh, Michael Grinch, who wrote a great piece up on Sportsnet.ca. Uh, again, I can't recommend it enough. It does say 22 minute read though, so it warns you right up at the top that it's going to be a really in depth piece. But I think it's really rewarding if you want to learn more about Scotty Barnes. And of course, thanks to our producer Derek Brandale. Uh, Jennifer Rolnick for helping us with the YouTube stream and uh, yeah I'll be back to talk to you more tomorrow 